0: Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 114, There Was One Among Them. Have you ever had an Elma moment, one in which you find yourself being chastised by a servant of God, corrected just in that very moment and experiencing humility, your heart softening and repentance beginning? I was 17 years old and I was in my senior year of high school and I was sitting there in the chapel, middle pews, even towards the front. And I was dead center, right there in front of the pulpit, listening to a visiting authority named Elder Gene R. Cook. It was a special youth fireside. They often held those when we had visiting authorities from Utah. They would come to our stake and they would have a special youth fireside. And they would usually talk to us about God's standards and how we need to elevate in order to be able to meet his standards. And there I was. And I had always had a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I generally made good decisions. I tried my best to be a good kid. And it's not even an understatement to say I also was naive, which I don't see as a bad thing. But I was definitely a girl who was trying to do her very best of crossing that bridge from going from young women into young adulthood. In that moment of time, I was blessed with such good friends some that were extremely confident and charismatic, which was so complimentary and good for me because I have a natural shyness about me. My life was blessed by these friendships, and so with that and coupled with my security in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there I was, sitting among friends in my stake, listening to Elder Cook, and truthfully, I don't remember a lot about what he said leading up to my disgruntled feelings. I remember that he wasn't saying anything that was too far removed from what I was already trying to do, except that he spoke in absolutes that I was then deciding to become prideful about. I remember him stating that we should never date someone more than once in order to avoid temptation and that that had been a rule in his home for his children while they were growing up. And I remember this statement because I remember feeling opposition towards it. I was a part of this large group of friends and I felt good among them, and a lot of them were boys, and it was fun to be able to do things with them. We went to church dances together and then to Denny's afterwards. We gathered in large numbers at each other's homes and would go down to the beach for bonfires, and it just felt like to my immature, naive ears, the elder cook was saying that I was compromising my standards by doing that. Now, mind you... With my adult ears, I'm pretty confident that that's not what he was saying at all. That he was promoting group dating and discouraging singular dating over and over again. But you see, I had just decided through my pride that I was going to really stop listening and just start gathering evidence of how Elder Cook was wrong. And so, lost in my own thoughts and emotions... At this moment, all of a sudden, I realized before me that Elder Cook's demeanor had changed. All of a sudden, he was calling us to repentance for our rebelliousness, and I remember thinking, wait a minute, did I give myself away? Did I roll my eyes? Did he see that? Can he see that I was disagreeing with him, that I was thinking he was ridiculous? I'm not sure what the rest of the room had been doing. Remember, I was at the front, but it was clear that the speaker, Elder Cook, could see that his counsel was not being received well by the group. And I'm not sure of what pushback he had been receiving. But Elder Cook started changing his approach to us when he related an experience that he had had with someone who also was rebellious against God's standards and who was actively working to lead the youth of the world away from those standards. Elder Cook stated that the individual that he had had an encounter with was with Mick Jagger. Now, to my 17-year-old mind, Elder Cook was now crossing a line. (laughs) Remember, I was naive. (laughs) Now, I knew that Mick Jagger in no way represented the things that I wanted to do with my life and the standards and morals that I wanted to uphold. He was a rock and roll legend, and he was the front man of the Rolling Stones. But I all of a sudden started becoming defensive of him, especially hearing how Elder Cook was going to start telling us a story about how Mick Jagger was doing wrong. And why is this? (laughs) It's because I had developed an emotional attachment to the singer. Through his music, I had bonded with my dad, completely oblivious of his intentions and his suggestions in the songs. In my teenage years, liking my dad's music helped us have a relationship and have something to enjoy together. In fact, my dad had just even recently, before this fireside, taken me to LA to an IMAX theater, which were just starting to pop up. They weren't as popular all around as they are now. And so dad drove me into LA and what was showing it was a Rolling Stones concert and it was loud and it was big and it was so much fun it felt like we were actually there but in a very safe surrounding and I remember my dad like apologizing a couple of times for what was happening but it was all going over my head I was just having a good time listening to the music with my dad and now Elder Cook is going to start taking that away. That's what I remember thinking. I remember thinking, don't take away the fun that I just had with my dad. Great, I'm going to have to now feel guilty about dating boys and liking the Rolling Stones. (laughs) So I remember being curious enough, thank goodness, to start listening to this story that Elder Cook started to unfold to us. Elder Cook began by speaking about Jagger's appearance how sickly he looked, how thin he was, about how he didn't recognize the man, and that they sat next to each other on a plane ride. Elder Cook spoke about his habit of speaking about and testifying of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon whenever he traveled, how he sought the Spirit's guidance as he opened conversations with strangers. Elder Cook introduced himself, exchanged pleasantries, and instead of introducing His name to Elder Cook, Jagger just pointed to a picture of himself in a magazine and Elder Cook then made the connection. And I remember Elder Cook saying that he took the opportunity to have a conversation with Mick Jagger about music and its influence on people. I remember initially thinking how lucky Elder Cook was. I also remember having a lot of respect for him. That he would open his mouth to someone that obviously did not have the same morals and beliefs that he did. I remember hoping to one day have the same courage of Elder Cook to be able to have the confidence to speak about the gospel freely to whoever I came in contact with. So anyways, as the two of them started to talk about music, Elder Cook expressed his concern that music can easily influence the youth, at which time Mick Jagger confirmed and even bragged that that is exactly what he does, that intentionally his music is written both with words and music to convince youth to have sex and how videos have served to drive that message home. Sex sells and that was the business he was in intentionally specifically targeted at young people and hearing that I immediately began to feel violated for in my mind at that age it was so black and white it was one thing for others to have their different standards than me but to intentionally try and pull me down and to deceive me that was different it was disrespectful and it was threatening to me Why would standards, my standards, matter so much to Mick Jagger or anyone in show business? Elder Cook went on describing the arrogance that the singer portrayed towards him, how it was increasing with every alcoholic drink that the singer had. Jagger mentioned how he had had the missionary discussions and even had read the Book of Mormon and then loudly so that others on the plane could hear he said that the Book of Mormon was full of lies, and this was a punch in my gut. Because fortunately, I had read the Book of Mormon. I had accepted and completed the challenge that my ninth grade seminary teacher had given me to read the Book of Mormon for myself and to receive a witness of its truth. And as I recall, that witness wasn't a huge, magnificent event. No angels came down to tell me of its truth. I just felt loved. And I felt a feeling that in my mind seemed to indicate to me, or communicate to me, it's true. You know it. You know it's true. And so, here just moments before, I had been listening about a man I thought was cool. And now I'm hearing him desecrate a book that I knew to be sacred, And I began to feel this sadness inside of me, I remember, as if the spirit that resided in me mourned. It was another witness to me that the spirit weeps in a way when rejected and when the book, which is another testament of Jesus Christ, is scoffed at. This became another witness to me of the Book of Mormon. The story of Elder Cook and Mick Jagger goes on, but what's most important in this podcast is the change that occurred in my heart. I went from being a part of a congregation of teenagers who believed that this servant of God that who was sent to us on assignment, who had been set apart to speak the words that came into his heart to us, while I had believed prior that he was being prudish and extreme and just plain out of touch. And during the course of this meeting, I went from being defensive and desiring to hold on to things that were below my standards, but I was finding fun in, to being humble and remorseful and truthfully somewhat embarrassed of my behavior. I hoped that he didn't see me roll my eyes. I hoped he didn't read in my body language that I was rejecting his counsel and through the spirit that does accompany us when we are repenting. We don't do that on our own. We are definitely given heavenly help to help us along the way. I was then able to accept and I could see that the intentions of man out there were trying to deceive and were definitely working contrary to God. I was able to see that Satan can lure you away, even with music. He can tempt you to let down your guard, to loosen up a little bit, and to find unwholesome conduct and lyrics and humor that is definitely below how you normally would live your life. Well, he can cause you to be able to become defensive of those things that are wrong and offensive to God. And as my naivety was being chipped away, I was grateful that a servant of God was helping me through the Spirit be able to gain wisdom. And I liken this moment to Alma. I'm not sure of the extent of Alma's iniquities. I do know later on he will say that his repentance was sore. But he must have fit the description found in Mosiah 11 that Noah put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father and consecrated new ones in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. So Alma, just like me, had had pride contention, conceit, and competition, all the things that I felt towards Elder Cook's teachings. And I imagine Alma experienced the same thing, but the scripture reads, but there was one among them whose name was Alma. He also being a descendant of Nephi, and he was a young man, and he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken, for he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. Therefore, he began to plead with the king, that he would not be angry with Abenadi but suffer that he might depart in peace this time around i've tried imagining what was occurring in alma's heart i believe he had been deceived by the iniquities of his peers i imagine he had fallen for the appearance of fun the confidence that they portrayed while they were engaging in iniquities and how it appeared sophisticated he was young Like me, who maybe he was trying to be big in that moment. He was trying to cross the bridge into young adulthood. And obviously he had been betrayed. But as he listened to Abinadi, witnessing the man who had been brought before Noah, was Alma like me? Did he roll his eyes at first? Did Alma think Abinadi a little too serious, a little too black and white, a little too prudish? And what was it that changed him around? And I spoke about that last week, that I believe it was the connection that Abinadi was able to make, that he connected the law right back to Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was the physical glow and the command of the spirit that had something to do with it as well. I too saw a command come over Elder Cook. I think that's what initially caught my eye, caught my attention when I started to tune him out. His demeanor changed. But I believe that Alma's heart was plugged back into his Savior, Jesus Christ, just like mine was plugged back in to the Book of Mormon that absolutely testifies of Jesus Christ. And that I could see how absolutely real it was that someone would loudly and purposefully use his swagger to desecrate it. No way, if given a choice, would I ever choose Mick Jagger over the Savior. And there was no way that Alma was going to sit there and choose Noah over Jesus Christ or even his servant Abinadi, even if he was just one among them. And what encourages me is that Alma sat there listening to Abinadi and he must have felt a change happening in his heart and his repenting process was beginning And it happened enough to be able to allow him to stand up with courage and with conviction and request that Abedinadi be allowed to just let him go, just let him depart in peace. However, this request would then direct the king's anger towards him, causing Alma to flee before the king's guards and to hide himself for many days. But you know, I bet he took that chance knowing that that might just happen. And he stood for what he knew to be true anyways. He listened to the spirit who was pricking his heart. And even though the circumstances were quickly escalating, he chose to stand up. Now, contrast that with Noah. And let's just take out the king title and let's just see him as a man, no better than Alma. Both sons of God, both being called to repentance. Notice how Noah's pride would not permit him to consider the teachings of Alma. At the very least, he even couldn't just discount Abinadi's words and just let him go. He needed to silence Abinadi. His pride would not let Abinadi walk free. And for three days, Noah and his priests counseled with one another on how they could bring Abinadi to death. And what they came up with was blasphemy. Abinadi had said that God himself should come down among the children and men. And they demanded that Abinadi take back all the words that he spoke regarding evil concerning the king and his people. And do you notice they aren't too concerned at all about this supposed blasphemy against the Savior. What they're concerned about is the offense that they personally had taken and felt. And can you hear how scared Noah must have been? how he clung to his iniquities tightly, not desiring to let go. The scriptures tell me something was stirring inside him, telling him that Abinadi might just be right. But instead of changing course like Alma did, Noah instead will use his power to silence a prophet of God. And by the way, of course Abinadi will not take back his words. And I wonder if Abinadi knew in that moment how closely he will represent Jesus Christ, whom he spoke and taught of, how he will be a shadow and a type of the Savior's own final days and death. Did he know that the Savior will be asked to recall his words and how the Savior won't? How just like Abinadi had allowed himself to fall into enemy hands, so did the Savior. Both men prepared to lose their life for the truth of God how both will die, how innocent blood will be shed on both accounts, how their words will be sealed by their death, which made Abinadi the first martyr for Jesus Christ amongst the Nephites. He being the first, but actually testifying how he himself will not be the last, how even as the flames began to torch him, he testified that the seed of those present, they will cause many to suffer the same pains that Abinadi was now suffering the pains of death by fire, because there will be others who will believe in the salvation of their Lord. Abinadi prophesied that they will be afflicted with all manner of diseases because of their iniquities, and they will be smitten on every hand, driven and scattered to and fro, and they will be hunted and taken by the hand of their enemies, and that those present will also suffer the pains of death by fire. And then Abinadi Just like his example, Jesus Christ will say, "O God, receive my soul. And when Abinadi had said these words, he fell. Having suffered death by fire, the work was finished. This prophet of God had finished his work. Enough time and space had been given to these individuals to repent and their agency had sealed their fate. Now back to Noah. Did you know that he actually started to change his mind? When Abinadi told him that not only would he not recall his words, but if Noah killed him, he would be shedding innocent blood. Noah began to fear. He was actually about to release Abinadi. Finally, he had enough fear in his heart about the judgments of God. But you see, Noah was not of the same caliber as Alma. He did not listen to be changed. He did not have courage and conviction growing in his heart. And it appears here that easily Noah's priests were able to appeal to his pride and get him stirred back up again. Simply by misrepresenting Abenadai's words, making them an offense as if he was reviling the king, or in other words, criticizing the king in an abusive or angry, insulting manner. Noah gave in to the peer pressure he was experiencing and he allowed Abenadai. To be bound and scourged with faggots unto death, which my research indicates this means taking sticks that are flaming and poking at his skin, scourging his skin until he is overcome. Though the peer pressure that Alma experienced was overpowering and he actually needed to flee because of it. In coming weeks, we're going to see that the manifestations of the spirit will work on his behalf because he stood. Versus the peer pressure that Noah experienced and succumbed to. He killed a prophet of God. Even when there was something in his heart indicating that Abinadi might be speaking truth, his pride, his contention, his conceit, and his arrogance would not allow him to succumb in front of his friends and the ramification of his weakness in the face of peer pressure, it will bring about consequences upon him and upon the priests and also their seed that will take almost 70 years to be fulfilled. In my case, it's easy to be one among them. I still don't remember any conversations with my peers about our interview with Elder Cook because really that's what it ended up feeling like. Where I had been in error, I was corrected by one of God's servants, and I found myself never again wanting to be in opposition to one of them again as I sat there foolishly defending what I internally knew to be in conflict with God's teachings. My change that happened was a very personal one, leaving an impact on me that created in me a great love for Elder Cook. I would seek out more of his counsel on how to pray, and I would be in attendance once again when I was married, this time in a state conference meeting, among many, feeling such a great love and connection to him because of the influence he had had on me, and he has no idea who I am, or that I was even present. I wonder if a Benedi knew Alma. I wonder if he knew he had changed one, saving many. I wonder if he died knowing that he had made a difference. Sometimes we just don't know the impact we have when we, with courage and conviction, decide to be the one among the many. Sister Scriptorians, this week's Ponder Prompt just gives you an opportunity to preserve a time when you were one among many when you stood for the standards of God, or when you chose to repent and correct your course to change your mind. Take time this week to record that experience and make sure you preserve the manifestation of the Spirit you were blessed with. I received another witness of the Book of Mormon. What did you...